Friends, Christmas at Mendham Hills is coming up, um, and I always feel the need to come up and explain why we do tickets, because every once in a while I get an email that says, how detestable are Chris tickets for a Christmas service? Um, just like perspective last year, okay, first of all, remember 2020, we had to do Christmas in the parking lot, because uh, it was COVID, right in the, the heat of COVID in the cold of Christmas Eve out there. And then last year, we had nearly 1,200 tickets taken, which is the problem, right? Because if 1,200 of you show up, 200 of you are going to get seats, and there's going to be 1,000 angry people on Christmas Eve, and nobody wants that, especially me. And so we give the tickets away, but it's just to uh, you know, make sure that you, you get a seat. But if you were around last year, you also know that we did Christmas Eve in the heat of COVID. I got a fever at 9 o'clock. I was watching It's a Wonderful Life sitting on my couch at 9 o'clock, and I said, you know, I don't feel good. Um, and I tested positive for COVID the next day. So who knew we were in the midst of a super spreader event right here at Men Mills Community Church? But only, only about 600 folks um, were able to make it out on Christmas because it became such a prevalent thing in our community. So this is our first regular Christmas Eve in two years. Uh, really three. So I'm excited to get back in the room with you. Today, go to mhcc.life. You know, if you know, if you, if you know what service you want, go get the tickets now because um, many of you know they go fast. So I want to encourage you to get out there. And we're going to make that promo available. The goal here is to reach, right, the 96,976 people that live within one town of our church that really don't have any kind of life-giving relationship with Jesus, right? He's, a, he's either a historical figure or a mythical figure. And our desire is to make him an intimately known figure, an intimately known person, right? And so we do that on Christmas Eve like no other night. We're going to make that promo available to you, for you to get out to your friends, encourage and invite them to come with you on Christmas Eve. Today, we're in the final week of what's just really a short little three-week discussion on why money and fear seem to go so hand-in-hand hand for us. I started this a couple of weeks ago because I got tired of, of the drumbeat, right? This constant uh, news stream trying to beat the fear drum into our heads related to what many believe is likely an upcoming season of economic hardship, of recession. And fear, right? Fear makes us make bad decisions, bad short-term decisions, bad long-term decisions. People use fear to move us, right? to change us, to motivate us to do what they want. Fear gets us to draw bad conclusions, wrong conclusions. Money and fear, well, they tend to be almost in the world in, inexorably tied together. And that's why Jesus, because he was aware of this, seemed to tie them together too. Now, if you've been here, we've been looking at the fact that other than the kingdom of God, Jesus talks more about money than any other topic in the Bible. Many of you know Jesus famously teaches in story form called parables. These famous teachings, right, about a third of them are related to money. Jesus speaks more about money than about heaven and hell combined. But it's not just him, right? If you were to pour through the scriptures, there are about 500 verses on prayer and faith, but there are over 2,000 verses on money. But here's the thing, and I've been trying to stress this. As much as Jesus spoke about money, here's the key thing. Jesus never asked one person ever for a dime. Not a nickel. Meaning he'd have a place to lay his head, but he wasn't looking for anybody's money. Because Jesus isn't interested in anybody's money. God's doing just fine without our stuff. But Jesus came to win your heart, right? 
and, to, and not to take your money. But here's what Jesus knows, right, about you and me. Nothing, and I mean nothing, competes for our hearts and our faith and our trust and our allegiance. Nothing competes for priority in our lives for first place like money does, right? Somehow it gets this foothold in our soul and it becomes this priority for us. And what happens is when money takes the place of God in our life, right, when it, when it becomes the place from where we draw our value and our worth and, and our significance, right, our identity, our security, those are all things that we're supposed to take from God. But, but so many of us, especially in, in communities like where we live, so many of us tie those things to our success in this world, and mostly that's judged by money. So anytime anybody starts to talk about things going wrong in the financial world, well, we get scared. And, and that's why, to me, this is so interesting. Jesus, right, he talks more about money than almost any other topic. But, but you have to couple that with what Jesus' most prevalent statement or, or, or question was in the scripture. Why are you so afraid? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record Jesus asking that question over and over and over again. Why are you so afraid? Do not be afraid, little ones. And the answer is because we've placed the wrong God at the center of our lives. That's the power that money has over us. That's why we're often so afraid. Jesus talks about it so much and asks about it so much because it has that kind of power to unsettle us, to make us make bad life choices, bad life decisions, send us in bad directions. And, and so that's why we've been looking at it over these couple of weeks. Because I just want to try to untie, I want to break the power of money in our lives. And so week one, we looked at, at one of these parables, these stories Jesus told. The parable of the rich fool. If you remember, you were here. It's the story of a guy that becomes so rich, he breaks down all of his old barns and builds new ones so he can hold all of his success, right? All of his treasure. And once he gets done, and once he's built it all up, he kind of kicks back, and he looks at what he's attained, and he goes, now, finally now, I'm in control, and I can sit back and take life easy. I don't have anything to worry about. And you might remember, there was a fairly harsh rebuke that came to him there, right? God says to him, you fool, you're not in control, and all of the things that are really important to you you can't buy with money. You can't control with your money. Tonight, your life will be demanded from you. And then who'll get all that you've stored up for yourself? So week one, right, we looked at, it's in that same story, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and, and discovered, I think, I did at least, that all of us, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, if you have a lot of money or a little money, if you're rich or poor, all of us have these little greed issues, these little gods that we've built up inside where greed controls so much of our lives. We talked about how we can overcome the power of, of greed in our lives and break that chain of fear. Week two, last week, we looked at not one parable, but two very similar parables, right? If you were up here, I reintroduced kind of the buckets that we talked about. I try not to talk about money because I really care about the 96,976 souls that will live within one town of our church that don't know Christ. And when people walk into a church and they hear the guy talking about money, they're like, ah, it's the same old church, right? And so I try not to talk about money too much, but the reality is, I mean, if I'm going to be a decent pastor, I have to talk about it. I should talk about it more because Jesus seemed unconcerned with talking about it because he knows the power it has. And so I had these buckets up here, and I, I, I showed you last week how, 
how five years ago I had said, you know, in our lives we have these priorities, right, of live, and then we spend everything we have on living, and then we save a little bit if we can, and then, you know, if there's anything left over, we might give. But how really following God would cause us to reprioritize those things. And what if we had done that five years ago? What would our lives look like right now? How much less anxiety and stress would we have in our lives right now? So we took, the, took a look at that last week, right? And we looked at, last week, the key was misunderstanding our responsibility and role with money. Because we believe, because the check came with our name on it, and it goes into an account with our name on it, and the only person who can get it out is somebody that has our signature, we tend to believe that the money is ours. We earned it. We, we deserve it, right? And so we should be able to do with it whenever we want. But last week, what we realized, I hope, is that we are not owners. We are but managers. It hearkened us back to week one's parable. The money is not ours. I mean, gosh, if you're here this morning and you're not sure that Jesus is who he said he is, right? If, if you're not sure he is the way, the truth, and the life, that, who, that, that nobody comes to the Father except through him, you might not believe that, right? But even you would have to ad admit that you know, the answer to the question when Jesus asked the, the, the rich fool, who's going to get all that you've saved for yourself? We all know the answer. The answer is someone else. I mean, the money's not yours. Don't you see? You're just managing it for some amount of time. And, and when time is up, you're going to hand it to somebody else. It's not going with you, right? You're just managing it for someone else. The only question you have to ask yourself is, who are you managing for? Who are you managing it for? Are you managing it for just some cosmic force? Or is there a personal God that created you on purpose for a purpose and has plans for you? And what you've been given, you've been given with a purpose. And, and because you're a manager, you now have responsibilities. That was the discussion we talked about last week, right? Next, uh, this is week three. This is the last week of it. It's Thanksgiving weekend. I, I, I kind of tied this talk to this weekend. I want to harken back to that first parable again where Jesus is, con well, God was confronting this rich fool who had thought that he could kind of be God for himself if he, he got enough stuff, right? And Jesus asks the man, or he makes, excuse me, he makes a seemingly innocu innocuous statement, but it's deeply powerful. Here's what he said to the man uh, hoarding all of his stuff. Then he said to them, Jesus looked around at the crowd that had gathered, Watch out, remember this, be on your guard, right, against all kinds of greed. We talked about this because none of us see, see greed. It sneaks up, right? It hides itself under, under things like, well, I'm a careful planner, right? Things like that. Nobody, nobody ever comes to my office and goes, John, I'm really struggling with greed. So, so Jesus is going, you got to watch out. you got to be in your guard for this. It's going to sneak up on you. Why? Because, here's the important statement, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What Jesus tends to understand, or Jesus knows about us, is that we tend to believe we have a propensity to get, get, to get confused and believe that, that life, the good life, the life worth living, we, and look, this is just, let's be honest, we, do, we get confused with this, that that life is only attainable as we get more and more things right? And this concept of life and us getting it right, experiencing it the way that we were created to live for purpose, on a purpose, we were created to live and enjoy that kind of life. It is super important to Jesus that we get life right, that we not fall for some counterfeit life. Why? Because that's why he came. 
I've come, Jesus said, that they may have life and they might have, have it to the full. So thanksgiving, gratitude, right, and life, according to the scriptures and according to modern day science, these things are very, very, this is, I mean, you should go home. I just want you to go home and grab, and, and, and if you don't buy into this talk, just check the science. Go home and, and Google gratitude and generosity and life, and you will see pages of studies on this. The University of Notre Dame has actually started a gratitude department because of the power gratitude has in your life. There are dozens of scriptures on the concept of being grateful, being thankful. Some of you know who the Apostle Paul is. He's this Jewish Pharisee, right? Turned Jesus follower. He was the one who in the church's infancy tried to crush the church, and he winds up becoming its great evangelist, wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul writes to a church, it's, it's in the New Testament, that he planted in the city of Philippi about this concept, about the power of gratitude and life. Here's what he said to them. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm, I'll say it again, Paul says. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious, okay, here it is, about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And here it is. Here's the opposite. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. To make it short, Paul says, listen, don't be anxious, be thankful. And when you are, and the science is clear on this, when you are, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Not the peace, because it's not available, from getting barns full of things. Right? Then you just worry about those things. You worry about the stock market. You worry about inflation rates. That's, that's a fake peace. In fact, here's, here's the deal. Thanksgiving, gratitude, is so important that it's actually God's will that you be grateful. It's his will for you. To the church in the, in the city of Thessalonica, Paul writes a very similar message. Again, rejoice always, exactly what he said to the church of Philippi. Pray continually, same thing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why is it God's will that you be grateful? Is God like some kind of like needy being up in, in heaven going, oh, these people I just give and give and give and they're never grateful? No. Right? We've got to get rid of the concept of the narcissistic God that's just up there going, well, these people are such ingrates. That's not why. The reason is that he came to give you life. And life is found, you were created to be, there is amazing life-changing and life-giving power in being grateful for what you have. And as you do that, you will decouple worry and fear and anxiety from your life. And you'll find, you'll find what the scriptures call real life. Now, this is not just a Bible thing. John Tierney in the New York Times, again, you know, this is not, not a... a, a a source that, that is super, super oriented towards building up faith. Here's what he, he said. He agrees with Paul on this. Quote, he said, talking about Thanksgiving, 
I like this. The most psychologically correct holiday of the year is upon us. Thanksgiving may be the holiday from hell for nutritionists, and it produces plenty of war stories for psychiatrists dealing with drunken family meltdowns. But check out these findings. Thanksgiving, this is the New York Times, right? has recently become the favorite feast of psychologists studying the consequences of giving thanks, of gratitude, of being thankful. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude has been linked to better health, sounder sleep, who needs any of these things, right? Less anxiety, less depression, higher long-term satisfaction with life, and kinder behavior towards others, including romantic partners. By the way, there's a whole other study. If you want to make your marriage better, become a grateful person. I mean, it's, on, it's linked to everything. It's linked to everything. A new study shows that feeling grateful makes people less likely to turn aggressive when provoked. It helps explain why so many brothers-in-laws survive Thanksgiving without serious injury. <laughs> Mine just left this morning at 7 a.m. We made it. Study after study after study, over and over, the same conclusions. The power of gratitude to give you life and the power of gratitude in your life to give life to others. And here's why. Because gratitude, this is both biblically validated and scientifically proven, gratitude is a fuel for generosity. The business world understands this. Right? Here's Forbes magazine, okay? This is not a, this is not a Bible study. This is Forbes magazine. Quote, mention Wall Street or hedge funds to many people and, and the image of greed and cutthroat competition are likely to come to mind. As noted in a recent article, however, many of the best practices I'm observing, he's trying to just help, he's helping Wall Street with this, okay? This is not written to the church, right? Many of the best practices that I observe among successful money managers are distinctly spiritual. Perhaps nowhere in the business finance stereotype does it get so challenged as in the area of generosity. A broad range of research findings and observations from trading floors suggests that giving plays a powerful role in winning and peak performance. Gratitude, generosity, life. A particularly impressive research summary prepared by the Greater Good Science Center for the Templeton Foundation finds that generosity is significantly associated with happiness, again, this is Forbes magazine, general health and well-being, and quality of life. Interesting, interestingly, there appears to be brain links that connect generosity and happiness, with even small acts of giving triggering positive emotional experience. Happy people, now listen to this, because I'm going to circle back to this for you. Happy people report volunteering 5.8 hours of their time per month. Less happy people average only 0.6 hours per month. The generosity-happiness link is kind of a spiral which act, with acts of giving, yielding positive emotions, and those emotions further energizing generosity. Do you see the life link? This is why it is the will of God for you to be thankful. Now, it turns out, I'll give you a little more science here, okay? It turns out there really is an actual link in your brain for this. Forbes is right. This is from the University of Oregon. Just check this as my last science one for you. It turns out that the neural connection between gratitude and giving is very deep, both literally and figuratively. A region deep in the frontal lobe of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex 
is key to supporting both of these things. Anatomically, this region is wired up to be a hub for processing the value of risk and reward. It's richly connected to even deeper brain regions that provide a kick of pleasurable neurochemicals in right circumstances. The participants I'd identified as more grateful and more altruistic via a questionnaire showed a stronger response in these reward regions of the brain when they saw that charities were gaining money. It felt good for them to see the food bank do well. Practicing gratitude shifted the value of giving in the prefrontal cortex. It changed the exchange rate in the brain. Giving to charity became more valuable than receiving money yourself. That's hard to believe, right? Giving to charity became more valuable than receiving money yourself. You can actually rewire your brain, which sounds like something the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to think very differently about money. It's very, very, very powerful in your life. It will take your life or it will give you life. We were created on purpose, for a purpose, and we were created to be, we were wired to be grateful and generous. Gratitude fuels generosity. That's where life is found. That's where life is distributed to others. Now, all that science, you don't need a scientific study to know this truth, right? Every funeral you have ever been to in your life, did anybody get up and just go, oh my gosh, you should see how much money this guy hoarded and left behind. He just packed it up. It's unbelievable. Nobody knew what a hoarder he was. He was amazing at spending all of this money and saving all of that money, and he never gave a dime. Nobody gets up at a funeral and says that. I've never been to a funeral where anybody ever got up and talked about how much money anybody had. I did. I've been to many funerals where, I've got, where people have gotten up and talked about how much money somebody gave away, how much of their time they gave away, how generous they were. How do we judge somebody's life? Not by what they keep or pile up or spend on themselves. We judge it by what they gave away. Why? Because we know... I mean, it's like sometimes we show up at funerals and we get a glimpse of the real truth about life for like 15 minutes, and then we walk out and we forget. But for 15 minutes in the room, right, with that sickening smell of flowers, you, you sit there for a minute, and it's like you come to and you go, you know what? This is the purpose of life. What they're saying, I want to be more like that. That's where life is found. That's where fear and anxiety would fade for me. And then we go back to living like it's all about the piling up of stuff. That's why Jesus goes, you gotta be on the lookout for this. You gotta watch out, it's very dangerous. Again, that's why this talk this weekend, for me, was timely because this weekend, right, as a culture, right, in one day, we pivot from gratitude, right, one day of being thankful, right, we, we go from, from Thursday being thankful for, right, to Friday, I want more, right? Like, that's exactly what happens. Right? I, I'm just so thankful, Lord. Th so thankful, Lord. What time did the stores open tomorrow? Every year. And nothing, right? You know, from grateful to a cartful, as I heard somebody say. Nothing has the power to suck life from us at this time of year, especially when we're reminded over and over and over again of all the things that we don't have. Right? 
You're just bombarded now 24 hours a day. And, you know, they make it look so nice and warm. You're just bombarded by, like, what you don't have. Things that you didn't even know you wanted, but you should want. You got the teaser I sent out this week, right? I, 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 I had a 2G phone once. I think I had a 2G phone once. I'm not sure. Nobody was talking about Gs at the time. And I was very happy with my 2G phone. Until every day, I started watching a commercial about 3G phones. I started thinking, you know, I probably should get a 3G phone. A man like me deserves a 3G phone. I'm an important guy. Lots of church business to do. I need a 3G phone. And so I got a 3G phone. I have to tell you, I didn't really notice any difference. Yet, sometime shortly after, somebody started telling me there was such a thing as 4G. Well, how can a man like me get by with a 3G phone? And so I, I found myself with a 4G phone. Now I have a 5G phone. It does exactly the same thing as my, my 2G phone did. I can't tell the difference. Can I be honest with you? I didn't even know what a G was. I had to look it up for this talk, <laughs> right? But I felt very emasculated by my 2G phone, and I didn't even know what a G was. Do you all know what a G is? It just stands for generation. I mean, I, what a sucker I am, right? I thought it had something to do with, you know, I don't know, something. It's, but I, I had to have it. At least I, I thought I did. And this comparison thing, right? It's very, very dangerous to, to your satisfaction, to your contentment, to your gratitude. When you're constantly on the lookout for all the things that you don't have, all the things others have, all the things that are, people are trying to tell you you need and you want. When we compare, all the, all the time we lose contentment. Many of you know Paul was training up a young man named Timothy. Timothy was going to be his protege, and, and he was going to send Timothy out to do all the things that Paul had done. And, and so in the scriptures, there's a couple of letters that Paul wrote to this young man, Timothy. It's amazing. They've been kept over thousands of years. And Paul warns Timothy about the dangers involved in lack of gratitude, lack of contentment, and what it can do to life. And then he says, Timothy, make sure you go out and tell people this. This is how important it is. Here's how he started, right? In preparation for Timothy's work, he said, Timothy, you need to know there are people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Hey, Timothy, this won't come as shock to some of you, right? There are people whose thinking is not right, and they think that following God means that they're going to get rich. They're going to get more stuff, more money. Have you heard that before? If you haven't, you should, <laughs> I got one amen in the back. He's buying into it, right? If you turn on late night TV, you're going to see somebody pushing that on you, right? You need to sow, sow something so it'll come back to you. We'll talk about that in a second, right? They're going to convince you that you, in a sense, should be godly because God will re reward you financially. And pre preachers have been doing this for a long time. On, on, on late night TV, they'll, they'll tell you that it's a reap-sow principle, right? which is a biblical teaching, right? You do reap, in a sense, what you sow. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow richly, you reap richly. That's the truth. But this is an agricultural principle, so stick with me on this now. When you sow seeds, do you reap seeds? No. You reap fruit. You reap a harvest. Nobody sows seeds in order to get back more seeds, right? They, they sow seeds in order to get something of, of more worth. 
more life, I would argue. And so Paul says, look, following God is not about money, right? But if you want to get rich, if you're looking for gain, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. I heard this week that word great there in the Greek means mega. You know, if you ever go to the gym and you, you buy mega gain so you can start getting bigger. This is how you get mega gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want, if you want great gain, here's two things, right? And godliness in the New Testament, remember, is first is be godly. In the, first, in the New Testament, being godly doesn't mean you go out and live in the woods in sackcloth and ashes. Godliness is living like Jesus lived, Right? following his one new all-encompassing command that you love God and you love others. You love God, you serve others. You love God, you forgive others. You love God and put other people before yourself. You put others first. God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's godliness. You first, me second. And then instead of trying to get more, instead of being that way and trying to get more for yourself, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Right? So instead, you be godly, right? And with what you have, you do good. It's not like, oh, you know, God, I've been so good. Would you bless my Mega Millions ticket? It's, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm content. I'm happy. I'm grateful for what you've given me. There's great gain to be had there. And he, and he explains why. He goes, for we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. Um, I can't help but think of, of my new seven-month-old granddaughter, right, Landry? Many of you have seen Landry. Landry brought nothing into the world. And yet, Landry wants for very few things. I don't see her looking around going, you know, if I just had a better grandfather, right? If I just had a nicer house or my parents just had a nicer car. All Landry's really looking for is food and a clean diaper, Right? You keep feeding her, you change her. She's pretty content with that. She's not looking for a lot else. Nor is Landry sitting around trying to figure out how she's going to accumulate stuff to give her some sense of identity or purpose or worth. You all have seen my granddaughter, either online or here in the church, many of you, right? Nobody looks at Landry and goes, you know, Landry, you're really not making very much of yourself. I take a look at you, kid, and I don't see much success. No, right? You look at Landry and you just know she's, I mean, I look at her and it's like, I can't even tell you why, but I know she is of inexplicable value because she's a human being. She's made in the image of God. She was created on purpose for his purpose. She, she doesn't need, she's not looking to make, her, make something of herself with money. And that's why Paul's going, look, you brought nothing into the world. You were perfectly content then. And then he says, you can't take anything out of it. Remember, you're not an owner of any of this stuff. You're just managing. It's not even yours. Why are you trying to get life out of it? He goes on. He's speaking about himself here. He goes, well, look, if we have food and clothing, we're going to be content with that. I would call that the Landry principle. You give her a little milk and a clean diaper, and she's pretty happy. Which, by the way, is the exact way all of us will kind of be at the end of our life, too. A little bit of milk, clean diaper, we'll probably be fine. Right? He goes on. He goes, here's the deal. Those who want to get rich, these are people who make being rich the point of life, and we all are guilty of this to one degree or another, okay? Those who, who make the point of life 
to be successful, to have lots of stuff, fame and gain and power and influence, all of it for this purpose, right, to get rich. People who do this make rich the end game. You don't get money as a, as a means for some other end, for a godly end. You get money for the point of it being the end, right? He says... Those that do this, who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap. He goes, Timothy, I need you to be aware of this. And I need you to tell other people. There are traps that are laid out there. And traps by their very nature, right, are hidden. You don't see them coming, right? You don't expect them. I never saw it. There are traps that are out there for people who make money the end game. Right? They fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Yet the sudden nature of that, they plunge people. There is this sudden catastrophe. They didn't see it coming. It, it's like it came out of nowhere, right? I remember watching, I remember being at my brother's house in March of 2020 when COVID hit and I'm watching CNBC every day. And I was watching everything plunge my 401k account plunge into oblivion. It's like the rich fool with the bigger barns. He didn't see it coming. This is the danger of discontentment, right? Of not being grateful. It will plunge you into, well, last week, remember, it'll plunge you into debt, right? Where suddenly you'll have like a new Lord over your life that will determine where you go on vacation and where your kids go to college, how much, how much you, money you have left over. It'll plunge, your, it'll plunge you into a second job. It'll plunge you from taking time away from your family. It'll plunge you into divorce as you fight with your spouse over money. All traps that are just set out there. I never saw it coming. And he goes, for the love of money, and, and you know this, it's not money. Money doesn't have any power on its own. Money's only power is actually to amplify what's already going on in our hearts, right? Jesus' one command, love God, love others, Right? The greatest revival or the greatest rival is money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I have to tell you, I, I, I've met with, with families and, and, and I've met with a couple of guys. And they're, not, they're not around, but I've, I've met with women that have said, my husband, he's never home, all he does is work, 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 and their marriage is falling apart, Right? And I've met, and, and, and I've, I've had a couple guys tell me this, and I'm like, you know, your wife says things are really rough at home, you're never home, and, and he's like, well, you know, I got to work, I got to provide. And I get that, man, but your wife says she doesn't really care about the money, she just really would like you to be home more. Well, I, I, can't, I can't do that because I'm in a really demanding job. And I said, well, I know, so would you be willing to, to quit your job and get another job? And I swear, this is a true story. I've had men tell me no. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you just told me the most important thing is your wife and your kids. Is that the most important thing in your life? It absolutely is. Will you change your job to prioritize your wife and your family? No. So tell me then, what's the most important thing in your life? And it's just this awkward silence. This is the power of money. There's no life here. It, it just will destroy. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And so you have Paul who loves Timothy, right? And he's worried for Timothy and for, for all of those who Timothy would teach. And so he says to him, Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. 
and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Timothy, don't stand against discontentment. Don't fight discontentment. Don't stand against the pursuit of riches. Don't take it on. What does he tell him to do? He goes, run from it, dude. You got no chance. It will kill you. It will crush you. You can't stand against discontentment and the pursuit of worldly wealth. Now, church, if you're, a, if you're a good church person out there, anybody remember the other time in the scriptures where we see that language where it's related to something that we should flee from? Anybody remember what Paul said to flee from? Isn't it funny how we have that one just memorized? Flee from sexual immorality. And the pastor always gets up and goes, you have to flee from sexual immorality because you can't stand against it. It is too powerful and it will destroy your life. Anybody ever heard that sermon? Why do no pastors ever stand up and go, you can't stand against discontentment and the power of riches. It will ruin your life. You have to run from it. I didn't write that. Paul wrote it. It was the same language. Two very powerful forces in our life, right? Sex and money. Sex and money. They have the power to destroy our lives. The desires we have for them, right? To give them the wrong place in our lives. To elevate them to godly things in our lives. These desires for us are two so powerful things that we should run from the two of them. They'll wreck your life. Some of you know this. Your lives have been ruined by one or both of them. Aside, can I just give you a little interesting biblical side point? I found this kind of interesting. In the Proverbs, the Proverbs says, this ancient book of wisdom in the Old Testament, right? Some people believe Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. It's all, Solomon's purported to be the, the, the wisest man who ever lived, right? He talks lots about the power of money and lives to ruin lives. Here's what he says on a couple of occasions, speaking to businessmen that might take advantage of, rip off other people by using fake scales and measures in those days, right? That's how they would kind of equate things, right? Well, like, let's measure this, let's, let's weigh that, and then we'll give you the opposite in, in some kind of a bartering system. Proverbs 20, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination uh, to the Lord. And so greed, right, this kind of injustice to trying to get rich by putting yourself before others, this is an abomination uh, to the Lord, right? Now let me ask you church people again. Quite famously, really, there's another sin issue that is condemned in the scriptures as an abomination. And what does it have to do with? Our sexuality. Sex and money. They have the power to ruin lives, to be false gods in our lives. And both times Paul's gone, no, 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 those two you don't fight against, those two you don't stand against. When it comes to power, the power of money and sex, you got to run from them. Because the, the misuse of these things is both an abomination to the Lord, right? But it also has the power to destroy your life. There is no life here. There is death here. Instead, Paul goes, replace the pursuit of money and riches, chase something else. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That's, that, that's what you fight for. Fight the good fight of the faith. Flee from discontentment. Fight for righteousness and love and faith and gentleness. So then Paul tells Timothy, 
to give people like you and I, people in Mendham and in Chester, New Jersey, right, who live in the richest areas of the richest country in the history of the world. He says to those of us who, you know, my, my family did this last night. My, my wife will hear me make fun of her in the second service, right? Last night at 8.30, all of a sudden it was time for a Target run. I'm like, a Target run? Well, yeah, what, what are you going for? Well, nothing in particular, we're just going to look. Well, you know how that went, right? Uh, Caroline walks in, I've got all new stuff for my dorm room, right? For people that, that have the ability to go on Target runs, right? Here's what Paul says. He goes, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, right? That's what the rich fool did, right? This is where our riches compete to be our gods for our hearts and our trust, right? We get arrogant because we think we are like God because we have so much. But to put their hope in God, not in our stuff, but God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Friends, this is a key to the teaching. Did you know God wants you to enjoy what he has given you? God, please hear this. God wants you to enjoy what he has given for you. For many of us, right? For many of us, God has given us so much more than Paul was content with food and clothes. God wants us to enjoy our lives. God wants us to enjoy our stuff. And do you know what ruins the joy that, in the stuff that God has given you? A lack of contentment. Well, but he got, but I just saw that ad for. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not sure Jesus is who he said he is, I want you to listen to what comes up now because the science proves that it's true, right? If you want to live a life worth living, but, but if you're a believer now, here's where I, I really want you to lean in. Here's a specific command, okay, for everybody in the room. So either you believe in this because you're not sure about Jesus, but look, science is science, or you believe in science and Jesus, which would be me. Here's, here's what Paul says as a result of all this. He goes, listen, command them to, to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be, there it is again, generous, 2G living, gratitude and generosity, gratitude and generosity, and willing to share. This is not a money command. It has to do with how you live your life, what you're going to spend your days on, your time on, your hour on, what your calendar looks like. Now, do you know why he has to command rich people to do those things? Because you know what rich people are? I know you know what they are. They're really busy. Aren't we really busy? Like super busy, right? They're either off earning money or spending money. That's what we do. I do it. I, I remember the days, you got to get up at 5, got to get on the 6 a.m. train to the city, hope to get home at 7. Got to get home at 7. Why? Well, I got to take my kid to his private lessons, his private coach, or his private tutor. I'm really busy. And Paul's trying to get Timothy to go, would you go and warn those people? They're giving their lives away. This is not the life that Jesus came to give you. Timothy, he says, they're falling into a trap. They're going to plunge into all kinds of bad things. Remember the science, right? Happy people report volunteering six hours of their time. Less happy people point six times. There's truth here, and there's joy here, and there's life here. We just got to realize we're being duped. He goes, look, if you'll do this, then you will lay up treasure for yourself. 
He says, tell them they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. He says, look, if you're going to refocus, if you pick your head up from the, the booby traps, all of the lies about money would just lead to such discontentment. If you'll rethink, if you'll focus on being grateful and generous, you will find a life worth living, a life that gives and leaves behind life, that doesn't just leave behind stuff that nobody cares about. This is how you leave something that is just not some things. The value of a life, you know, this isn't measured in what you keep. It's measured in what you give away. I'm going to close with this proverb. It's just so loaded with wisdom. One of the ones on money, I really like this. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Which is interesting, right? If you give the same amount of money, the wage, to a righteous person, it brings life. If you give it to the wicked, it brings death. Bruce Watke, he did a deep dive in the book of Proverbs, and here's what he says about whenever the Proverbs talk about righteousness, they say righteousness is used to describe somebody who disadvantages himself. He has a lot, but he disadvantages himself in order to advantage the community. Somebody that's wicked would be, conversely, somebody who advantages himself at the cost of the community. And so what the writer is saying to us, right, is that the wages of the righteous are life. It's life for them, and it's life to others. They take their riches, and they use it to advantage others. They understand that they're not owners, that they're just stewards, that they have a responsibility. But the wicked, they take what they get, they take what they have, their time, their talent, their treasures, and they use it for the advancement of themselves at the cost of the community. And it winds up being death to their souls and to the people around them to their neighbors. Life is found for us as we give it away. It's the truth. Our time, our talents, our treasures. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, I, I hope that the science convinces you to begin to live generously. That concept of 2G living, right? I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to be generous. To give your time and talent and treasure away sacrificially to others, to good causes, to the poor, the widows, the orphans, the maligned, the marginalized. I hope the science convinces you that there is life for you there. But if you're a Jesus follower, I hope that it's not just Paul's teachings that convince you of this, but Jesus' life that convinces you. Here's what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, see that you excel in this grace of giving, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The wages of the righteous is life for him and for others. If you're a Jesus follower, Jesus is the ultimate example of the righteous one, one who is rich beyond comparison and gives it all away. This is why Jesus never speaks of a tithe. Jesus didn't tithe of his body, didn't, didn't tithe of his blood. He sacrificed everything and all of it because there was life there. New life, eternal life, resurrected life, abundant life. And not fear-inducing anxiety and worry, right? And so as we end, I want you to leave wondering what it is you're leaving behind. What does your life consist of now? What is your life going to count for? I mean, just be honest, pull out your checkbook, go pull out your statement from, 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 from the bank and see where all of your money goes. How much of your money is going towards you at one level or another? 
How much of, how much of, uh, of, of God's money or of someone else's are you giving away to, to his causes? What about your calendar? Where's all your time being spent? Like, where, just be honest. And I think if you do that, you'll start to under, uh, you'll start to see why there is so much worry and anxiety and discontentment abounding everywhere. The science is clear and so are the scriptures. You ever heard of John Knox, anybody? Unless you're a church guy. Maybe, I know, I know Dave might have heard of John Knox. Did you, did you raise your hand? John Knox, unless you're a bit steeped in church history, you probably haven't heard him. I want to show you what the world thinks John Knox left behind. This is a, a, a burial um, picture of, of his grave. That's where he's buried. Right there under parking spot 23. Can you all see that? And so once it was, uh, once it was realized that that's where he is, somebody put that plaque there for him, right? Now, by the world standards, that's what he left behind, Right? But here's who John Knox was. John Knox was Scotland's greatest Protestant reformer of the 16th century. He paved a way for the Reformation that transformed the country of Scotland. That plaque that somebody stuck there, here's what it says. The above stone marks the approximate site of the burial in St. Giles' graveyard of John Knox, the great Scottish divine uh, who died on November 24th, 1572. Now listen, guys. John Knox is unquestionably the founder of modern Presbyterianism. He resolutely preached his way throughout Scotland, gave his life to this. He, he moved the, this northernmost segment of the British Isles toward a Protestant faith. And now listen, within a few centuries, the Scottish church would become one of the greatest missionary sending communities of all time, establishing Christian witness over the entire world. Some of you are in this room this morning because of John Knox. And he's buried in a parking lot. He left two things behind. That parking spot. And you. And me. And countless thousands, if not millions of souls transformed. He gave them and himself the possibility of life. And so before we're done with the series, I just want to encourage you. Think about what you're leaving behind. Don't be a fool. The scriptures and science line up. If you want to find the kind of life that leads to peace now and prosperity for all time, that leaves in its wake life, real life for you and others, adopt a concept of 2G living. Be grateful. And let the generosity flow. Prioritize the kingdom of God. Be generous towards God. Seek first the kingdom of God with your time and your talents and your treasures. And I promise you, because it's not my promise, it's Jesus, all of these other things, including life, will be given unto you. Let's stand and close us all.